On an evening in early December 2018, the young CEO of a cryptocurrency exchange reportedly dies while on his honeymoon in India. This death is not announced to customers for another month. And when they're told Gerald Cotton is the only person to hold the passwords to their funds, conspiracy theories grow, leaving some to wonder, could Gerald Cotton still be alive? Honeymoon, moving the body, all the missing money. It was like, but what happened? A Death in Cryptoland. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. Thailand understood that the more Thai restaurants there were around the globe, you would have greater interest in Thai culture, Thai cuisine. It would create more uh, tourism. What this did is it took Thai food from being something very exotic to something much more mainstream. 20 years ago, Thailand embarked on gastro diplomacy. It wanted to change its reputation. Other countries followed. And so has what we eat. Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. When we order pad thai at a restaurant, it's because we like delicious noodles, right? But what if those noodles were part of a grand plan to win our hearts and our wallets through our stomachs? Also today, if food inflation has you cutting back on spending, well, now there's a word for that. Lessitarianism. Up first, in our modern reality, they know a lot about us. Where you go, how you spend time online, what you buy. If this is just how it is, could there be a way to make the tracking of your personal data work for you? We know Big Brother's been looking over our shoulder for a long time, tracking what we buy online, what we Google. But now Big Brother is leveling up. And in retail, Jennifer Keene, your friendly neighborhood grocery store is at the front of this? Yeah, big grocery and big data are tight. I'm pretty sure, Paul, that my local co-op knows all about my thing for Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And it's okay. I'm not ashamed. No, you shouldn't be. Hey, peanut butter, cup it up. I mean, loyalty programs, if you belong to them and they're affiliated stores, they've been collecting information about us for a long time. I try not to think about how much they know about me. Right. Nicole Rourke has a story that she likes to tell her marketing classes. She's a business professor at St. Clair College in Windsor. And about 12 years ago, she and her neighbor both ended up at the mailbox at the same time. It was a nice day, so they were standing around talking, and they noticed that they had both received Air Miles coupons in the mail. And we stood next to each other, and we opened our Air Miles. And hers were purchase um, fresh-cut flowers. You get X amount of points. And if you have, if you buy like beef tenderloin, you get X amount of points. And I was like, ooh, let me see what mine are. So I looked at mine and mine were buy yogurt tubes and buy cheese sticks. And I was like, this is so depressing. (laughs) 
Guess which one of them had kids? Cheese sticks. Right? But Air Miles was sending them coupons based on what they typically bought, right? Um, And that was a dozen years ago. So what do retailers know about us today? They know a lot. They know who you are. They know what you're buying. They know when you're buying it. They know know how you're buying it. They also recognize if you have um, responded to any of their promotional emails or any of their promotional text messages that they may have sent you. So they can predict your future behavior based on your past behavior. So they know quite a bit. Can we talk about this predicting our future behavior business? Well, we're fairly predictable in our shopping habits, right? We tend to buy a lot of the same things every week. So they predict our future purchases by looking at what we've already bought. And they put that together with the personal information we give them when we download apps or shop online. Angus McCuit is a retail consultant with McKinsey in Toronto, and he says these days some grocery stores are also watching us in the old-fashioned sense. Other information that, that's captured around customers increasingly is using uh, in-store sensors and cameras uh, to track both cell phone, how cell phones move around stores, but also how, how individuals move around stores. So with this data, they may not know who you are, but they know in general how people are shopping. So I'm going up and down the aisles, and they're just watching me. Some are. Yeah, I mean, it's all valuable information for grocery stores. You know, in terms of how do they decide what goes where? Like, they notice a lot of people are in aisle one buying rice, and then immediately after they go to aisle four and buy fish sauce. So maybe those two things should be closer together. I mean, if you kind of step back from the unsettling surveillance state part of this, is this kind of how grocery stores have operated for a long time? Like you had a smart manager, you know, he'd be out there figuring out where his regular customers were shopping. If aisle three was busy and aisle one wasn't, he knew all that. Sure. This is just a high-tech version of that, right? But these days, grocery stores don't just sell groceries. If you look at a company like Loblaws, if you have a PC financial card, they have your account information, your credit score. If you use the pharmacy, they'll have your healthcare information. And what do they do with that information? Well, I, I spent some time uh, with the Loblaws privacy policy online, and it says that they can share the data within their own companies, and that includes things like PC insurance and even some third parties. So. I asked Angus how this sharing is most likely to happen. What what typically happens more is the the grocer would say, we have a thousand customers who buy, you know, uh, your competitor's soup uh, once a month. Would you like to market to those 1,000 customers and send them an offer for your soup instead of your competitors? And we, we will give that offer to that customer on your behalf. So they say to a soup company, hey, we know a whole bunch of folks who are not buying your stuff. Give us some money. We'll give those people a coupon for your soup. That's not bad for the store. I can see how it works for the company. What about us? Well, we get the soup coupons. I mean, so it's a trade-off. If you're willing to share your shopping history, your personal information, you will get offers specifically designed for you. And you can work that to your advantage. If you're really price conscious, like Laura Hillman. I guess I I don't mind them knowing what I'm buying or eating or sharing as much 
because, you know, I'm, I'm getting it to my advantage typically. Um, and, and it does help when the algorithm sort of, um, picks up on my shopping habits and gives me offers that work towards things that I typically buy. Laura lives in Acton, Ontario, and her Instagram handle is the Frugal Fairy Godmother. So you can imagine how much she thinks about savings and deals. She spends hours every week trying to work the best deals, and she has figured out ways to make all this data tracking work for her. All right. What kind of moves does she have? Well, you know loyalty programs, right? That these are designed to encourage you to stay loyal to one retailer. And then you get rewarded with points for that. But sometimes she says you can get even more points by playing hard to get. For example, with PC Optimum, they have what are known as like total spend offers. Yeah, sure. They offer you points because they want you to spend a certain amount and they want you to keep spending more. Right. And that offer is based on what you typically spend. And you might have noticed that over time, the amount you have to spend will start creeping up. If you spend $100 the first week, the next week it'll be $150. The next week it'll be $175 until you're getting up to like two, $300. Um, so the way to get that to sort of go down is to take a break from meeting those, those goals. Every uh, few weeks, um, you just don't meet it and it'll drop down after a while. So she deliberately spends less, so they'll send her deals for more points. Yeah, I mean, she's just kind of teasing them, right? (laughs) Playing hard to get. So she uses that same approach with online shopping. Sometimes she'll fill up her shopping cart and then just leave it. Because if you look like you're interested in something, but you don't check out, you don't pay, you might get some discount codes to entice you into finalizing that purchase. She's basically just fishing dangling out some bait, hoping they'll bite. And if you're serious about doing this, you can try and trigger deals just by buying something, then not buying it for a while. Maybe they'll send you an offer to lure you back. She's putting in work here. She is, but she's thinking of ways to outsmart the algorithm. All right, what if you like the deal part of this, but what you don't like is being tracked? Have you met the 21st century, Paul? I try not to. (laughs) You'd have to leave your phone at home, forget the loyalty programs, pay with cash, cut out the coupons from the flyer because they do still exist. You just have to find them. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, you could do all that. But practically, is someone really taking their phone out of their pocket when they're going into the grocery store? Like, it just doesn't seem like the world we live in. It it doesn't. I mean... uh... The future is here, like it or not, between location tracking and AI, Angus McCuit laid out what grocery shopping could soon look like. And I'll tell you, it's going to get even more personal. Many grocers around the world are experimenting with how do I be really in the moment, give customers what they need in terms of if they're standing at the shelf, can I give them a 20% off promotion right when they're staring at it? As they walk in the door, can I, can I, notify that customer, I see you've just walked into my grocery store, here's your shopping list from last time, and here are five items that I would love to tell you are on sale today or you know, maybe time-limited offers. If I got a text as soon as I walked into a store, I would be turning around and walking right back out. But you're not going to get the soup coupons. Oh, well, I like a nice soup coupon. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. You're welcome. On your Radio and by podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haverschrude. Bigger, larger, more. 
This just seems to be the way of things. The global population keeps going up. It's crossed 8 billion. The Empire State Building used to be huge. Now, the world's tallest skyscraper, the Burj Khalifa, is twice as tall. And just look at what inflation is doing to your food bill. Well, our producer Alice Cho finds more Canadians are now trying to tap the brakes on everything getting bigger by making do with less. Susanna Tobar and her family are meat eaters. There's nothing they love more than throwing a big, fat, juicy steak on that barbecue. But these days... We are eating like more vegetables, uh, as well like kind of bread and beans. Grocery prices are still high, on average 20% higher than two years ago. So something's got to give. Instead of grabbing beef and chicken at the grocery store, Susanna just buys chicken. Instead of buying it every week, she's buying it every three weeks to stretch out every meal. Let's say instead of just eating like the chicken in, in the plate with the salad, we try to make it with pastas. So that's why we try just to cut it in little pieces, put it in the pasta, and in that way you have more space because groceries... Kathy Parada has a word for this. It's... Lessitarianism. Meaning, not vegan, not vegetarian, but people who are eat meat and fish and poultry, but are looking to cut back on their weekly intake. We've seen that number rise. Kathy is the VP of Market Strategy at Ipsos. She tracks consumer eating and drinking habits. She says this year, nearly half of all Canadians say they're trying to eat less meat. If we look back to 2022 and 2021, we would have seen that health, environmental concerns, top the reason that people were looking to cut back on meat intake. But over the past year, interestingly, cost or the cost of meat has risen to the number one position. Kathy says that spike is pushing more people to try meatless Mondays, especially baby boomers. That's not surprising because they are the biggest meat eaters. Well, I think it's not surprising that people are eating differently. We're seeing a lot of changes in behavior. I think people are shopping. Mike Von Masso is a food economist at the University of Guelph. He says these days Canadians are dining out less, buying less, and eating less. I know lots of how families are eating smaller portion sizes, and that's, you know, what we're being encouraged to do by the Canadian Food Guide anyway. You know, half your plate uh, uh, should be fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, but I think uh, also some people are putting off for the occasional meal and eating uh, a vegetarian option, uh, which, which, may be, which may be cheaper. Less meat, more mung beans. For years, we've been told eating less meat is better for our health than the environment. So could high prices be the thing that convinces more Canadians, like Susanna Tobar, to become lentil-loving vegetarians? Uh, I don't think so, because still the meat is really good. 
the chicken is nice, the steak is good, the pork is delicious. So, so it's something that I will continue eating for sure. Just less. Correct. Just less. That's, <laughs> that's true. Just less. For the cost of living, I'm Alice Cho. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Anna Ko grew up in South Korea. Since she was a girl, she's made kimchi, the spice cabbage dish at the heart of Korean cooking. But when she moved to Canada in 1974, even finding the right vegetables was tough. Like the main ingredient, cabbage or suchoi. They don't have any suchois in the beginning. Once a year, New Year's, Chinese New Year's Day, they bring it from other um, city, I think. That time only we can buy it. So we're using for the cabbages. Whatever comes in the store, we're using it. It's not the 1970s anymore. Today, Korean taco trucks are driving around Canadian cities serving bulgogi burritos and bowls of bibimbap. Korean fried chicken is everywhere. And Anna? Four years ago, she went from making kimchi for her family to opening up a business and selling it. Four years ago, I didn't even expect that I'm going to make the kimchi for selling. But I always eating kimchi, making kimchi. But in, since I saw we need it in the market in Calgary because a lot of markets in there, but no kimchi. So I said, so what's this? We got to make kimchi to, to explore to need more. So how's it going? How's it gone in the last four years? Oh, it's... Uh, quite a bit up, quite a bit. A lot of people coming here buying it, and uh, we, some of them are stores are selling our kimchi. What kind of stores? Like uh, uh, Chinese food markets, uh, supermarkets, and sobeys, and some sefe. I mean, you've been here for 49 years. Did you ever think you'd see kimchi and sobeys and Safeway? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> and, uh, but nowadays, they love to do, buying a kimchi, eating kimchi. So kimchi's gone mainstream. Funny how that happens, huh? Well, sometimes why we choose to eat what we eat doesn't just happen by chance. Go back 15 years and South Korea realized it had a problem. The world didn't know much about it. Not being popular wasn't like a bruised ego in junior high. It was bad for the economy. Japan was kind of eating its lunch. If you were debating between a Toyota and a Kia, then Made in Japan had Korea beat. So South Korea set out to become, well, cool. And it figured one way to the world's wallets is through our stomachs. We got strawberries, chancen, love that kimchi. Keep the skin so beautiful, full of energy. 
So the country's Ministry of Food recruited K-pop superstars, the Wonder Girls. K-Food Party was not a huge hit for the Wonder Girls. But for Korean food, it was part of the country's push into gastro diplomacy. Paul Rockauer first heard the term 20 years ago when the magazine The Economist used it in a story about global Thai. This was Thailand's plan to add thousands of Thai restaurants to the world's food scene. At the time, the country's reputation wasn't the best. Paul Rockauer was doing a graduate degree in public policy and became fascinated by what gastro diplomacy could do for a country. Thailand understood that the more Thai restaurants there were around the globe, you would have greater interest in Thai food, Thai culture, Thai cuisine. It would create more uh, tourism to come. So what Thailand did is they, they had soft loan financing for Thai restaurants. They worked on creating access for authentic Thai ingredients for their, um, for their restaurants around the globe. There was even a Thai chef visa program in New Zealand. And they had a number of different programs over the years where they had like uh, different models of restaurants you could um, adopt. So there was like the fast casual Thai restaurant, there was the uh, more high-end Thai restaurant, but they gave models for Thai restaurants around the globe to, to, uh, to work with. What this did is it took Thai food from being something very exotic to something much more mainstream. You find Thai food everywhere. In 2002, the world had about 5,000 Thai restaurants. By 2018, there were more than 15,000. Gastrodiplomacy is based on what political science types call soft power. It's the art of persuasion. If hard power is military force and economic sanctions, soft power is like the, hey buddy, of international relations. And for a country, fostering goodwill can turn into good things. The benefits of increasing soft power, you see increased tourism, you see increased interest in, in your culture, in your country. You often see you know, more foreign direct investment because of uh, an increase in, in, in soft power. I mean, the, the thing to understand is it's ephemeral. I mean, not everything that can be counted counts, not everything that counts can be counted. So you have to understand that this is a, a long-term engagement of which the seeds you plant now might not be visible for years to come, but in part because this is a long-term endeavor being conducted by, you know, by governments, by multiple stakeholders in government, you can, you can work on the long-term. You know, the, the doyen of American public diplomacy, Edward R. Murrow, said, you don't have a cash register that rings every time you change someone's mind. More countries now see food as a way to boost their status in the world and do it for a relatively small price tag. South Korea launched kimchi diplomacy for around 80 million. Malaysia, Taiwan, Singapore, they're all doing gastro diplomacy. Indonesia just launched Spice Up the World. Peru has Peru Mucho Gusto. The field of gastro diplomacy started out of what's called middle powers, not countries that are great powers and not small countries, but kind of those in the middle of the pack trying to use public diplomacy, cultural diplomacy, gastro diplomacy to help raise their, their nation brand status. Since South Korea started kimchi diplomacy, the K-pop band BTS has become the biggest act this side of Taylor Swift. 
Parasite won the Oscar. Squid Game became the most watched show on Netflix. Gastrodiplomacy is like the proverbial butterfly flapping its wings. You set it a flapping, and who knows what happens on the other side of the world. Paul Rockauer says it's a lot like advertising. The theory being, once you start noticing something, you're more likely to keep noticing it. Psychologists actually have a term for this, the Beider-Meinhof phenomenon. The guy who coined the Beider-Meinhof complex was, he read an article about the Beider-Meinhof gang and then like he kept seeing stuff about Beider-Meinhof. Well, if your touch point is something, then you're more inclined to see more of it and be more engaged in it. So like, if you start eating more Korean food, you might grow more interested in Korean culture, have a greater understanding of what are Korean brands. It's using that soft entry point into getting, you know, that, that hook. We all have free will. We get to pick what we eat. But sometimes the choices in front of us aren't there by chance. They get a little nudge. The economics of gastrodiplomacy counts on the emotional connection we have to food. As the saying goes, tell me what you eat, and I'll tell you who you are. Eating Korean barbecue doesn't mean you'll buy a Kia. But if it helps just a little bit at the edges, then that could be enough return on investment. Paul Rockauer thinks a little gastrodiplomacy could help Canada. Our economy is built on exports, just like South Korea, and we're a middle power. So, poutine diplomacy, anyone? I'd love to see more uh, Canadian gastrodiplomacy around the globe and, and even some Canadian gastrodiplomacy to our, your, your neighbors in the South down here. Because I don't know of any Canadian restaurants in Phoenix, Arizona. But you know what he can get in Phoenix? Pad Thai, Peruvian ceviche, Korean fried chicken, and none of that is an accident. Just ask the Wonder Girls. On last week's show, we looked at a little change airlines could make that might make flying a bit smoother. Letting you check your bags for free, but charging for carry-on. How did that sound to you? If checked luggage was free, nobody would take it on board. It would all go underneath. I think that's a great idea. Hi there, this is Michael Kelly from Mississauga, Ontario. Checking my bag for free. Uh, it seems a lot more convenient, but you still have the wait times. I checked the bag once because I had liquids I wanted to bring back, some beer from England. And so I checked my bag. I waited 45 minutes for my bag to show up. And that alone just convinced me, never again, I will stick to carry on, probably pay for the privilege. Hi, my name is Lynn Kennedy. I live in Oxford Mills, Ontario. Um, I wouldn't mind checking my stuff if I knew I'd get it back. I would check it for sure and save all the hassle of shoving things up in the bins and fighting with people for space and everything else. Um, but I don't trust the airlines. <laughs> they, they haven't been very good. They certainly haven't been consistent, and their track record is abysmal. Whew. Tell them what you really think, Lynn. If you hear something on the show and want to give us a call, 
Our number is 1-866-550-COST. That's 1-866-550-2678. Or email costofliving at cbc.ca. That's the show for this week. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline, the little alligator Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Haversrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.